Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. I wanted to add my welcome to you all this morning, but especially a, a warm word of welcome to all of our university students who have returned to the city and returned to university and college. Uh, we're glad to have you here and some new faces as well. Uh, university students, college students who are checking out the churches in the city and deciding where they'll land for this semester at least. Uh, we're delighted to have you here with us and pray that uh, you'll find it feeling like home by the time you're finished here today. You'll go, man, I know there's other good churches in the city, but this is obviously the best one, and so I'm going to stay right here. <laughs> or something like that. Friday, August 25th, Hurricane Harvey slammed into the Texas coast around 11 p.m. Houston was devastated by the flood. The death toll now stands at more than 70. Four days later, a torrential rainstorm took place here in Windsor, the storm of a century, we're told. Several people in our church had water in their basement, and some are still cleaning up. Yesterday, Hurricane Irma tightened its grip on Florida, and there are now more than 280,000 people in that state who are without power. Today, we're going to hear about another kind of storm in the opening paragraphs of the letter written by James. He talks about the storms of life and how we should handle those storms when they come. In this letter, James is addressing Jewish believers who are bruised and beaten by adversity. They are suffering persecution. They're living in poverty. They were in spiritual and political and social conflict in their culture. They were just like aliens living on the planet. They knew the bruised and bloodstained misery of troubles that just wouldn't go away. Every time they turned around, there was another hurricane staring them down. But many of you have experienced similar storms in your lives. Unexpected unemployment, crippling accidents, unfaithful marriage partners or boyfriends or girlfriends who've cheated on you, the rejection of a great idea, the death of someone close to you, and the list goes on and on and on. Troubles, problems, the storms of life. Whether you're climbing trees or the corporate ladder, it still hurts when you fall. And in the very first chapter of his letter, James goes to work on setting fractured attitudes and binding bruised spirits with the great physician's truth about the trials of life. And so first of all, let's have a look at the, the truth about trials. Some people believe that the day-to-day -day trials we experience are a form of punishment from God. That sort of theism is not the kind of teaching that the Scripture knows. Others dangled the promise before us that if we just reached a certain level of spiritual maturity and, and, and exercised enough faith 
that somehow all of our troubles would disappear and we'd live happily ever after in the spiritual Disney world. A few might even dare to suggest that if we just gave a little bit more money to this ministry or that ministry or, or this preacher on the internet, then our troubles would certainly be looked after. But James doesn't know anything of that kind of teaching. He has something very different to say. The Bible says that trials are unavoidable. And that sounds very different from what we've just been talking about. <laughs> trials are unavoidable. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet them. Not if you meet them. But when you do, count it joy. They are inevitable. They're unavoidable. They're inescapable. They're here to stay. So as long as you've got a pulse and you've got air in your lungs, you're going to face trials of different kinds. And James also gives us a warning about the, the variety of trials that will come our way. Uh, it's really interesting in the Koine Greek, in the Greek New Testament, the, the word that he uses here for many kinds is the word from which we get the English word polka dot. And so we can expect our lives to be spattered here and there with trials of different sizes all over the place, polka dot trials. Furthermore, trials have a purpose. They're not only unavoidable and inevitable, they have a genuine purpose. He says in verses 3 and 4, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that's a purpose. God wants to, to take us through these things so that we lack no thing. We're lacking in nothing. We're spiritually mature and able to handle the things that come. So trials have a purpose. The storms of life are specifically designed by God, by a loving Father, to stretch our faith. They really are for His glory and our good. They really are. Trials are not your enemy. <laughs> they're, they're actually our friends that call us into a, a deeper relationship with the Heavenly Father so that His work can actually be accomplished through us. It's a common wedding scenario where the, everyone meets in, in one location for the ceremony and then sometime after the ceremony takes place, they, they get in their cars and they drive to another venue for the reception, right? Simple thing. But for one Ohio couple who were married not that long ago, things got complicated very quickly. After the ceremony, Jeff and Rebecca Payne uh, got into the vehicles that were tra to transport them to the reception along with all of their guests, but they were met with an unexpected and unwelcome surprise, a traffic jam on the expressway on the way to the reception. They were stuck for hours on the expressway on the way to their reception. <laughs> and after being parked there for about an hour, uh, people in the next car noticed that Rebecca was wearing a wedding gown. And so they knocked on the window and they opened the door and began to chat. And so these creative new friends suggested that 
they go ahead and have their first dance right there on the, on the highway. So Jeff and Rebecca looked at each other and shrugged their shoulders and said, why not? So they got out of their car and somebody got a tablet out and started to play a wedding song or some song that would do for the first dance, you know. And there they were. They started celebrating right on the highway. Well, people everywhere were getting out of their cars and joining in the dance. And the one dance led to the next one and the next one. And they just had a great big party right there on the, in the middle of the highway. Trials have a purpose. God wants us to become mature and complete in Christ, right? That's the goal. And the implication that James leads us into this morning is that without polka dot trials, without traffic jams, without disappointing news and discouraging setbacks, spiritual maturity may not happen the way God wants it to happen. You see, they have a purpose. These, these things that happen in our lives happen for a purpose. That's the truth about trials and the storms that come our way. But I'd also like to talk to you this morning about the attitude that wins. There's a certain attitude when trials come that guarantees success for us no matter what the outcome of the circumstances. James chapter 1 verse 2 again says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Such an important verse. I want to invite you to say it with me out loud, would you? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, count it all joy. <laughs> Speaking from his experience as a, as a prisoner in the Nazi concentration camps, Jewish psychiatrist Viktor Frankl said this, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. You can take everything from me, but you can't take my freedom to choose how I'm going to respond to whatever happens. While the trials of life may strip away everything else, they cannot steal my attitude or the choices that I make about my circumstances. So friends, choose joy. Make the choice to rejoice. Choose joy. Every time, choose joy. If you have an option, if you have a, 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 an opportunity, choose joy. In this text, I find three key words that help us to shape an attitude that wins no matter what. First of all, the first word is, is count. James 1, 2, count it all joy. Count it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Has this guy lost his mind? I mean, he's, he's writing to, to Christians who are suffering persecution. They're living in poverty. They're, they're, they, they understand the blood-stained misery of life. And he's telling them to count it all joy. Consider it pure joy. Well, how nice is that? A letter of discouragement from Pastor Wacko. I mean, what pastor writes to people who are suffering and says, oh, count it joy. So what does he really mean here? I, I think that James is commending this 
conscious embrace of a Christian worldview which brings joy into the trials of life because of the gospel, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and transforms those same trials into opportunities for spiritual growth and personal development by the grace of God for His glory and for our good. That's what I think he means. Count it all joy. Here's another opportunity for God to be glorified. Count it all joy. Here's another opportunity for you to stretch and grow. Count it all joy. Here's another opportunity for you to lead your family and, and, and show them what you're made of. Count it all joy. Make a deliberate, careful decision to experience joy in times of trouble or testing or trial because Jesus has gone before you. He has shown us the way. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, from where he makes intercession for us. He, he knows how to pray for us because he's, he's, he's gone through all that, we, all that we face. So there is no temptation which is uncommon. He understands it all. Another word that helps us attain this attitude that wins is the word know. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So you, know, you ask, how, how can a believer be, be joyful and positive and confident in the midst of unemployment or, or rejection or, or suffering? How, how can you be joyful in the middle of that? Well, because we know what we know what we know. We, we know certain things. We have the inside scoop. We know that tests are designed by God for His glory and our good. We know that, right? We know that, right? Okay. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> we know that trials have a purpose. We know that. Uh, we know that they're not simply play toys of, of circumstance. They're, they have a purpose. And we know that the heat of the furnace is not turned up to make us crack but to solidify us so that we can do the will of God. We know that. And, and, and we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness by the grace of God. That we know too. So we know what we know what we know. And that's why the word know is an important word in this attitude that wins. So, so we live out our lives based on what we know is true from the Scripture. Not based on how I feel on any given morning. I'd be okay with that because I usually feel pretty good every morning. I'm a morning guy that gets up quite early in the morning. I like the mornings. Pastor Phil, on the other hand? Well, that's another story. Yeah, there's a lot of chatter going on down here. We're... We know what we know, what we know. And we press on based on the understanding and teaching of the Word of God, not just based on how we feel. But that's such a temptation, isn't it? Because we're human. Well, the third word in developing an attitude that really wins under trial is the word let from verse 4. Count, no, let, 
Verse 4 says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. I like that. Lacking in nothing. I like that. But letting steadfast have its full effect is, is a little more challenging. See, we, we often try to use God, and maneuver God, and manipulate God. Uh, we, we, we bargain with God to change our circumstances. We, we often use God to change our circumstances. On the other hand, God is often using our circumstances to change us. That's just, that's how he works. That's how it works. So let steadfastness have its full effect, he says. Let perseverance finish its work. Allow endurance to to fully develop. Cooperate with God. Participate in the lessons that come to us through the storms of life. In his book, The Fight, Dr. John White, Christian psychologist, says, tough times either make you or break you. If you're not utterly crushed by them, you will be enlarged by them. The pain will make you live more deeply and expand your consciousness. So if you want to live more deeply, you're, you're kind of sick and tired of that shallow living, you know, one inch deep and a mile wide. If you're tired of that, foster the attitude that wins and let steadfastness Finish its work. He's at work. Philippians 1.6. God is at work in us. And we are waiting for that day when he brings it to completion. But that day isn't today. Or tomorrow, probably. So let steadfastness have its way. Let it have its full effect. And bring you to that place of spiritual maturity that God so longs for you to have. But what if we blow it? I mean, what if we, what if we really fail? We, we supersede the, the gracious act of God in our lives and, and we mess up and we, 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 we cut short steadfastness and take back our right to do it my way, like Frank Sinatra, you know. So we fail. We blow it badly. What happens when we fail to foster the attitude that wins? Well, frankly, that's the trouble with trouble. It it doesn't follow the rules. Right? It it just doesn't follow the rules. You, You can't set the rules for trouble or for trials or suffering or persecution or disease and say, okay, you have to operate within those boundaries. It doesn't work that way. The trouble with trouble is there are no rules. And the trouble with trouble actually may be a lack of wisdom. That's the trouble with troubles. Part of that might be just a lack of wisdom. We lack wisdom. When tests come, we're not well prepared. We're not well advised. We're not wise in all these things. The insight, the understanding that we need to deal with this trouble effectively has evaporated. It's not on call. But, but James says in chapter 1, verse, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I love that verse. 
I love it. Because I just feel there are so many times in a day when I, I lack wisdom and I, I need his wisdom. And I just, I gravitate to James 1.5 over and over again. If any of you lacks wisdom, hello, that's me. Let him ask of God. Let him ask God who gives generously. Thank you, Lord. You give generously to all who ask you. Thank you. Furthermore, the trouble with troubles may also be a lack of genuine faith, true faith. Verse 6 says, let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, quickly dissecting that, that passage or those few verses, we, we, we have to say that James is not referring to saving faith here. The, the faith that brings us into the uh, experience of salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He's not talking about saving faith here or even just sort of a general trust in the Lord. He is advocating for a strong, sturdy, sustaining faith that involves complete abandonment to God and His purposes in our lives. That's what he's advocating. You know, we need to live full-on faith no, with no doubt in God or His Word. We need, need to live full-on. That's what he's advocating for. So, vacillating between trusting God and trusting the world produces people who are, whose lives are kind of characterized by the waves. You know, they're, they're up and down, they're in and out. You know, sometimes they hit the shore, sometimes they stay out at sea. You know, waves are unpredictable. There, there's an instability and uncertainty about this. So that's what he's saying. You know, vacillating between trusting God and, and trusting the world is not not a good thing. And faith and doubt. And then almost out of the blue, James goes to verse 9 and says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his... What has this got to do with what he's just been talking about? I mean, really, when you, when you, kind of, when you read it, it's like, oh, this is like opera in the, in the middle of a rap. It just doesn't fit, it seems. Oh, but wait, but wait. This is the inspired word of God. <laughs> oh, So, given the context, James seems to be saying that the challenges of poverty and the challenges of wealth may be one of the greatest trials for Christians. I think this is an illustration of one of those polka dot trials that comes. So whether you're rich or, or poor, you have lots or you have little, you're going you're gonna to have those same trials. You're going to struggle with trusting God or trusting the system. If you're rich and you trust the system, you're going to want more and more and more because more lots is never enough. You always need more, right? And if you have little, well, you want just a little more. <laughs> so instead of trusting God, we trust in the world and we talk to the Portfolio broker, we talk to the stock broker, we try to figure out 
how we can get more. Give me more. Show me the money. I want more. I want bigger. I've only got 2,500 square feet in my house. I want 3,000. And you see, when that happens, when we vacillate between trusting God and trusting the world, that's when we become like a wave that's tossed about in the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Rich and poor alike, all of us need to trust the Lord. That's what James is saying. Trust the Lord. But there is a silver lining here. There's a silver lining in the storm clouds of your life. There, there was a, a silver lining in the flood at 2401 Columbus. We had a bunch of stuff that we needed to get out of that old building. And the flood helped us get it out. And our insurance policy is helping to replace it. The silver lining of the flood. Who knew, Lori, when the three of us were standing there on Tuesday watching the water come into the building and we're going, how do we stop this? Who knew that there was a silver lining? Who knew? He, he knew. He always does. And it's always good. James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Lord. The silver lining is the blessing that God has promised to all who endure. He offers blessing to those who persevere. So don't even give thought to the alternative to perseverance. Don't Don't even go there. Just be absolutely convinced in your heart and your mind that you want to be one of those persevering believers right to the very end in spite of whatever hurricanes may come. We're going to stay. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You know something? We, We know that Jesus never wavered. He never wavered. He was steadfast. He he was devoted. He was faithful. He stood the test. Satan tried him. In the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, brought all kinds of temptation against him, and he stood fast. And now our only hope is Jesus. Because let me tell you, I've tried to stand fast on my own strength, in my own strength. It never works. You can't stand alone. I can't stand alone. Jesus is our only hope. And as I look at the scripture, I find that Jesus was steadfast and he lives in us by the grace of God, right? So we can remain steadfast under trial by the grace of God because Jesus lives in us and through us. Jesus was devoted and he lives in us by the grace of God so we can be devoted in the midst of the storm by the grace of God because Jesus lives in us. Jesus was faithful, and he lives in us by the grace of God, so we can be faithful through Jesus Christ by the grace of God because Jesus lives in us. Does that make sense? 
So that leads me back to the statement that Jesus is our only hope. The only way that we can remain steadfast to the very end is because of Jesus. Not my ability, not my strength, not my fortitude, not my ability to read scripture, not my lengthy prayer. Nothing like that. It's all of him. And those who trust in him through the storm and through the fire will receive the crown of life, symbolic of eternal life, which God has promised to those who love him. Do you love him this morning? And the promise is that you're going to receive a crown of life. So let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, you are stronger. You are stronger and sin is broken. You have saved us. It is written. Christ is risen. Jesus, you are Lord of all. And and when the unavoidable but purposeful storms come into our lives, you are always faithful in every way. And we know that we know that we can trust you. And so by faith, Lord, today we count it all joy when we meet the polka dot trials that you sovereignly allow to slide into our lives. And we will give you thanks today and tomorrow. And whenever the storm comes, we will say, thank you, Lord. I count it joy by the grace of God. Amen.